Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Missouri lawmakers this past session passed several pieces of legislation that were literally years in the making. One of those bills, now law, is a statewide prescription drug monitoring program. On this episode of Politically Speaking, we talk with State Senator Holly Rader, whose district covers parts of southeast Missouri. She talks about her years-long effort to pass the PDMP bill. We also talk about her opposition to vaccine mandates, including those from private companies, her goals for the 2022 legislative session, as well as the state of the Missouri Senate. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host. He is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Rosenbaum. And joining me this time in the studio in Jefferson City, she represents District 27 in the Missouri Senate. Senator Holly Ryder. And Senator Ryder, you've been on the show before. Welcome back. Tell us about your district a little bit for our listeners. Yes, thank you for having me. I love it. Um, so my district is Southeast Missouri, and I'm not all the way to Arkansas, but I'm Cape Girardeau is my largest town. Um, so I have six counties, Cape Girardeau, Scott, Perry County, Madison, Bollinger, and Wayne counties. So very rural, other than Cape Girardeau. I'm from Saxton, um, so Scott County, I actually live outside Scott City now, so just a couple miles from Cape uh, County line. But it's it's a beautiful district. We have all the crops. Um, rice is even one of the crops that's grown in my district. So we have row crops. I have cattle farmers. Very rural, very ag-centered, all except for Cape Girardeau. Now, Cape Girardeau, you know, we have a college, Southeast Missouri State University, a lot of um, economic development happening throughout from, you know, Perry County, Cape County, Scott County. Um, so it's, it's, it's really beautiful, and certainly in the fall is, is always my favorite time of year. We have a lot to cover, so let's get into it. I'm going to kick it off with what is my go-to topic these days, which is the upcoming 2022 legislative session. What are some big issues that you expect to tackle this session? There are some changes to um, tweaks to some of our domestic violence laws that I'm looking at. I've also been looking at um, homelessness across the U.S. And, you know, we've we've done a few things. A few of our towns, Springfield, for instance, has done um, quite a bit surrounding homelessness in the last year. But what I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing and see if there is something that we could do legislatively to be helpful, whether it's a pilot program or, um, you know, I, I just 
the mental health component to homelessness is just not something that you always think about, right? And so I'm looking to see what some other states have done that have have gotten mental health help along with temporary housing, transitional housing, those type of things. And so we're really in the middle of, of looking through that data. I actually got a lot back today. And so looking through that data and seeing if there's something that we can pull from that and actually have a piece of legislation to file that would be helpful in Missouri. So that's going to kind of be my big one that I don't have um, the actual legislation printed out yet. But syringe access is something that I've not been able to get through both houses the last few years. And um, really non-controversial, when you first think about it, even myself, when it was first given to me, you know, it was, oh, boy, I don't know about this. Um, even with my background, you know, it made me a little nervous. But then when I looked at the statistics and saw that people who use syringe access programs, and this is just a, a, a medical professional giving a clean needle to someone who is using needles. And so you're not enabling them. You're not increasing needle use because they're already using a needle. Um, no one's going to start using a needle just because they get a free one. So, but what it does is it drives down the infectious disease spread and keeps people alive because so many folks that are using drugs and using needles don't have someone in their immediate, in their immediate circle that has that knowledge of where they can actually get help. And so what we've seen with syringe access programs is that person who's, who's giving them that needle becomes their medical professional um, that they trust, that met them where they were at in life. And so when it comes time that they want to get better, then that's who they go to to say, okay, do you know where I can go? Can you help me get placed? And the statistics are overwhelming. I mean, it's four out of five who use syringe access programs actually get through um, treatment. One of the reasons you're in Jefferson City today is to chair a hearing on how the Department of Social Services lost track of foster kids. Can you explain the situation a bit more? I can tell you what was said today. And um, I think the report for was 2019, and it had over 900 children that were missing from the foster care program. And that's just off the charts in so many ways. I mean, I just can't even get my head around that. In the committee today, what has been told to us, and we're waiting on backup documentation, what has been told to us is that in 2016, a memo went out saying, don't focus on the documentation, focus on the family unit, focus on the actual therapy, focus on the actual mental health aspect of it. And so the department is saying that they have those, the majority of those kids aren't missing, that they are, they just, they didn't have, when they come and did the sample, pulled the 60 kids sample, they didn't have the documentation to back up where those kids are, but it was just because they had not been doing the documentation. So that was one answer that was given. The other answer was, is that in their drop down on the computer itself, the IT program, it has, uh, I think it was dislocated. And so those kids were all clicked as dislocated 
when it's not taking into account kids that they know where they're at, but maybe they're staying at mom's who isn't supposed to have them. And so so the department is saying that the majority of those kids, I felt like the department was saying today that the majority of those kids are not missing, but we've got to get the computer system updated and we've got to get the, um, you know, the IT handled and we've got to get the documentation problem fixed. And, and they're working on all of that. And I do appreciate that. And they were very, I mean, you know, the folks that came before us today are new. They weren't a part of this when this report was done. And so you kind of feel bad for them. But then on the other, we are, this is an emergency. And, um, and so my concern, I'm sure it's your concern too, is that we need to know which kids we need to look for, right? And, and we have to know that now because these kids, so many of them are being trafficked, are being abused. I mean, we need to know who we're looking for, and we must make that the highest priority. And I, I really felt like um, Director Nodell, he's a very empathetic man, and I've known him for many years. And so I, I really felt like, I mean, he heard the parents. He was sitting there listening um, to the testimony. And, and he has always worked with us very well. And so I look forward to chairing this committee with him as director and trying to sort through these things as quickly as possible. Now, do you think that one of the issues here is that the Department of Social Services does, do not have enough employees to deal with this issue and are not paying the current employees enough money and that these underpaid current employees have enormous caseloads where some of these mistakes that you mentioned in the previous answer like just become commonplace, not out of malice, but just because, again, these employees are underpaid and overworked. I do. And, you know, you and I have talked about that before, and I do feel strongly about that. I think that, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in in some pretty, you know, wild times and, and on welfare and, you know, just ar- around some families that didn't have a, a loving mother. And, um, and so I, I know some of the things I've seen firsthand, some of the things that these workers are seeing, and um, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, you know. And so you think about the trauma that we're putting the workers through and trying to protect these children, but then they're not getting paid much more than, gosh, minimum wage at this point. Um, so we, we must, we've, we've got to prioritize increasing pay for them. We've got to prioritize training and, um, and then more people because more of a caseload of that type of heartbreak is, it's just too much for somebody to stay in long term. You know, talking about kind of need of, of employees or need of money for these kind of these programs, you know, that the state is looking at billions of dollars through American Rescue Plan funding. Um, And I know there's been kind of the consensus or the idea, like, we don't want to pay things that are perpetual, like maybe, you know, new employees. But do you think maybe there is some of that funding that could go towards some of these programs that would be maybe a one-time expenditure? Absolutely. And that was one of the things that uh, Director Nodell had mentioned was that getting their computer system up to state of the art. Because, you know, with right now, if they're having to go through multiple screens through every, you know, transaction that they're doing or every 
new form that's being filed, every visit that they make, and they're having to do multiple screens. All of that is time-consuming, and um, with a better computer system, with more streamlined, up-to-date program, that hopefully is a one-time shot, right, of funding and can take care of getting something done like that. And then our workers would have this for the future. Uh, I wanted to to switch gears a little bit. You were one of six senators who signed on to a letter asking Governor Mike Parson for a special session to bar private companies from issuing COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Can you explain why you signed that letter and why you felt that that special session, which is not going to happen, by the way. What? Uh, <laughs> what? It, it, maybe it will. Maybe it will. I, you know, never say never. But can can you just sort of explain, like, why you felt it was necessary for you to sign on to that? Yes, yes. Um, so I think that, and look, I'm a business owner, but I don't think a company's liberty trumps an individual's. And so... If somebody doesn't want to get a COVID shot, I mean, I don't feel like they should be forced to to keep their job. I mean, we're going to have to start bringing in our vaccination records when we're applying for a position. That's just crazy. And so it and, and also and I'm not a medical professional. And so for everybody listening to this, I admit that. But when When a vaccinated person can be sick, can transfer COVID and not have any of the symptoms, I would rather be around someone who at least I'm going to know when they're sick. And on top of that, Procter & Gamble down in my district, our people that work at Procter & Gamble during the height of COVID when there was no vaccine, They were on mandatory overtime. They were working their tails off while everybody else was hunkered down in their house, getting out diapers, getting out toilet paper, you know, all the things that Procter & Gamble make. And they kept us going in the U.S. of those type of products, which are pretty dang important. And And then now they're being told, well, if you're not vaccinated, we've got a date coming up and you're not going to have a job. And it's like, well, really? These are some star employees that kept everything. I mean, literally people in toilet paper. So it's frustrating to me, but I don't think that companies or the government for that matter should be able to say, hey, you have to be vaccinated to get a job. What are some of your constituents telling you about the reason that they're not getting vaccinated? And and just for, you know, just for full disclosure, I'm vaccinated. I got a booster shot, but I have family members who have been hesitant to get the vaccine or are not getting the vaccine. So I've heard all different perspectives on this, and I'm interested to hear what you're hearing from your constituents who come up to you, say that this is a problem, and maybe they're giving their reasonings why they're not, but... They Maybe are. they are. So no, I'm, they I'm interested. Are. They to hear, I'm are. interested. You know, there is such a fear, and and it's a real fear um, of the shot. I mean, just some people are just really in fear of that they're having to choose between what they think could be their life or 
their job. Now, a lot of the people at the Procter & Gamble protest, for instance, that I was at, a lot of the people there were vaccinated. But they felt the same way that I do. Is it's like this isn't government's place. This isn't a business's place. And so they were there to stand with, you know, vaccinated or unvaccinated people. But it really, the, the folks that have called and kept my staff on the phone for quite a while, myself on the phone for quite a while, it's a true fear. I recently spoke with Don Cariff for the show, you know, the director of the Department of Health. You know, he says he believes that there's a portion of unvaccinated Missourians. You know, he says there are some, they're not going to get the shot. But he says there's a portion of them who he believes are truly hesitant, but that they're approachable. You know, they could be convinced. It, it's a, it's more of a matter of, of education, of, of, of outreach, out. or just of, of outreach or, or accessibility. You know, what are your thoughts on that? How do you think that vaccine outreach should be tackled? We do have um, a lot of, of great vaccine outreach going on in my district. We have uh, free clinics. Are, most of our pharmacies have signs up saying you can get your vaccine here today. And so I think that that is helping. And, you know, I mean, trust me, down in, in rural Missouri, you the pharmacist is who you trust. That's who you go to and you say, you know, Cindy's got a had a snotty nose for the last three days and in sleeping and you know I mean in a lot of in a lot of ways they are our doctor because they're our first point of contact when you can't get in to a doctor or when you don't have a, a clinic there in town and so I think that that has really helped and increased some of the numbers but um, you know there and I agree there are some that are just not going to get it and they're afraid of it or they just don't feel they need it and then you have those that are just waiting it out to see um, you know what the statistics are looking like on folks who are getting sick with long-term illnesses now you know I lost my daddy on March 1st and um, that was before the vaccine was available and he had gotten COVID he had went to the dentist um, right before New Year's and then on New Year's got sick and you know he was a bad asthmatic and um, never come out of the hospital and and so I mean I I understand the loss of COVID but I still feel that it has to be a person's choice. Governor Parson is kind of toying with the idea of allowing people who are fired because they don't get the vaccine to get unemployment benefits. What do you think of this idea? I think people who get fired because of the vaccine should absolutely get unemployment benefits. You know, I mean, these are folks who um, are in long-term jobs, the majority of them, and um, and have certainly, so many of them, I mean, I've had nurses call that are working at hospitals that are saying, you know, look, I'm not going to do this. Um, like I said, the Procter & Gamble employees, we have other manufacturers down in our area that are over 100 employees, and, I mean, those are good-paying jobs. And... And, I mean, they absolutely should be able to get unemployment. I know that from the previous show that uh, you talked about how you were a business owner. And I could definitely see if this proposal is enacted, businesses firing people and then just citing vague things like insubordination or, oh, it just wasn't working out or, oh, this person was late too much. When the reality is they're firing them because they didn't get the vaccine and then they would be able to successfully challenge unemployment benefits that way. Uh, what do you think about that? Because that 
could really poke a real hole on this proposal being effective at getting people unemployment benefits. As a business owner, I would be much more afraid of the um, attorneys that are going to be chasing those employees to be able to file suits against companies that are not being honest and toying around with their unemployment. I want to transition us to the Senate itself. You know, I know you were not at the veto session, um, which lucky you, <laughs> it turns out, you know, you found out, but you have, you know, found out firsthand how divided the GOP caucus can be. You know, there's there were some hard feelings over the FRA situation and the veto session. You know, can those bridges be repaired? I think so. You know, uh, caucus went really well and we just had that last week. I think that in it just it, and it happens in both houses. You know, I was in the house before; I was in the Senate. It happens in both houses, but you have you're, you're around each other and for quite a bit, and everything just keeps getting hotter and hotter, and um, until it kind of blows up. And um, but then time always brings cooler heads, and cooler heads prevail. And um, I felt like everybody was really working well together during caucus, visiting. Um, It didn't seem uncomfortable to me in any way. And so I really think folks in the Senate are very focused on the fact that we've got a big job to do with redistricting. And we have a big job to do when it comes to making sure that we're being uh, very careful with the federal dollars that are coming in and that we are really getting the most bang for our buck for Missouri and helping our people with this one-time influx of funding. And so I think that we're focused on on some of maybe the more pressing issues than worrying about, you know, who offended me last month or the month before. You know, one of the other things that I think is going to affect the session is there's like I'm being facetious here, but like half the Senate is running for Congress now. Wow. In fact, yes. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we're, we're, we're recording we're recording this show on, on November 16th. Senate President Pro Dem Dave Schatz is running for the U.S. Senate. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. So and, and, and oh, I don't I don't want to like, you know, ruin your, your 2022 uh. senator. But what happens if Jason Smith gets into the Senate race and you have to run for Congress? Like, oh. <laughs> You know, it's it's crazy like that. But isn't that you know, funny? Yeah, because that then then, you know, that puts several others looking looking at yeah. it. And it is it's um, it's going to be quite the dynamic. I mean, because, gosh, when in the House, what I have to compare it to is when somebody was running for the Senate, you knew they were going to get up and spend their whole 15 minutes, you know, just on not saying something that needed to be said, just getting sound bites, and that drives me crazy. But, um, you know, hopefully we won't be doing that in the Senate. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with even more questions for Senator Rader. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum. Our guest is Senator Holly Rader, whose district covers part of southeast Missouri. Senator, our next set of questions is on the PDMP, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. Why do you think this was the year that PDMP got passed? So last year was the year for it to get passed. So the compromise was actually reached last year. And... um, 
and and it's a great compromise. I, I was all for it. I just wish we would have come up with it, you know, eight years before. Um, but it was simply moving the oversight of the prescription drug monitoring program to a private board instead of the Department of Health and Senior Services. So that puts the private board is, you know, two from the Board of Healing Arts, two from the Board of Pharmacy. So one from the Board of Dentistry, an APRN from the Nursing Board. So you have people who are professionals who are actually writing these prescriptions, being the oversight. And so that compromise was reached last year. But because of COVID, it our time ran short. It got used then at the last few weeks as a political football, which burns my butt. And if I can say that on radio, um, it's, <laughs> it's so frustrating to see how those things happen, but they do. And it got to where it was used to, okay, well, we're going to give you this if you take that and, and back and forth. And it died because of it. But the, the actual agreement was reached last year. So this year coming in, you had me in the Senate for the first time. And so we were able, with the help of leadership, to get it out pretty quickly you know, and, and look, we still had many of my colleagues that were vehemently against it. But I think they looked at the fact that we had almost 90 percent of Missourians already covered in the St. Louis County program. What we were doing is is the rural, sparsely populated counties were the ones that were suffering because they weren't in it. And so got it through the Senate with a lot of talking and late night. But um, then it went to the House, and there were a lot of speed bumps in the House. I mean, I never thought it would fly through the House. It's never flown through the House. It's been a, it's been a, a work every year. But with Representative Travis Smith reached out to me, and he's new, you know, and what a great guy and all heart. You know, he really studied up on this, went through point by point with me, and really worked the House. And so between the two of us, uh, leadership in the Senate, we, I mean, we, we got it through some pretty big hurdles. And um, and so it, it just all came together perfectly this year. <laughs> And many counties already were part of the St. Louis County PDMP, kind of as you talked about. Why do you think being part of the state database was beneficial? The legislation that we passed will be, it's very similar to the St. Louis County program. You know, they, when we weren't passing it, they pretty much went by the same type ordinance that we were doing, we were trying to do through policy and, and got it passed locally. The vendor that they use is use is the vendor in I think forty four other states. So they know what they're doing. And but the benefit of doing the statewide versus the St. Louis County program is that if you are in say um, Greene County and you have the PDMP legislation, but Christian County does not, right next door, then 
someone who's going to the doctor in Christian County or to the ER in Christian County, then they come on over to Greene County, their Greene County doctor is not going to be able to see what they did in Christian County. And so with, with drug addiction, I mean, nobody sets out to be a drug addict. That's just not, that is, that's ridiculous that anybody thinks that you do. This comes on slowly, and the majority of those that are addicted really started out with injuries or reasons to be taking this medication, and then physicians didn't think it was addicting. You know, it was just this tsunami, this perfect, um, that just hit all the points, and so then we have this high population of people addicted to painkillers. Well, you have to go back to the root of that, and that's in that physician's office, that physician needs to be able to see what their patient is taking. They cannot effectively treat them if they don't know what they're dealing with. And so when when you walk into your physician's office, they need to be able to see if you're already showing some trends of addiction, because those can be turned pretty quickly. There are other options. There are so many other options if your physician truly knows what medications you're on. And so that's what we, through education and allowing your physicians that information, we can turn this around. And that's that's my hope for the statewide. Now that this bill is law, what are the steps needed for the program to get up and running? And, and how are you hearing, you know, are, what are you hearing about how it's going so far? From what I understand, they are working on the bid process now, you know, through um, OA, and hopefully that'll be done soon. Now, I've been told that the board has, has gotten started getting put together, not getting assembled, so not meeting yet that I know of. But um, so I think that, that the groundwork is laid, and now it's just getting that vendor locked in and rolling with it. You mentioned this before, but like the reason this took such a long time to pass, first of all, you had somebody in the Senate, Senator Rob Schaff, who was adamantly opposed to this. And as long as he was in the Senate, this was never going to get past him. But then like he left and then like four or five other people basically took up his mantle. But it did not seem like those four or five people felt as strongly as he did. Was that the reason you think you were able to get over the opposition because you were able to compromise enough to where people could just vote no without trying to kill it, basically? So honestly, the compromise wasn't um, it did not damage the integrity of it at all. It was it was just that board. And um, and so Schaff would have still been hell-bent on killing it, even even with the board change. I think, you know, I have some really good friendships with many that are opposed to it, and I very much respect them and, and any of their legislation that I don't agree with, and they've always given me that same kindness. And so I think it got to where they were able to look at the landscape and say, okay, do I want this statewide program that actually has some um, very conservative um, pieces in it that the St. Louis County one doesn't have? Like we have a purge of the data in ours after three years. We have um, 
you know, a, a firearm clause to where none of the information can ever be used by state, federal, or local officials to keep you from, you know, ever owning or obtaining a firearm. And it's all under HIPAA law, so you can't anyways, but it is nice just to have that backup um, precaution, you know, written out in there. And so I think what we found was is just looking at the two programs and saying, okay, we have a PDMP. It's not whether Missouri is going to be a state with a PDMP or not. We have one. So which one is going to be the, the most secure and the best program for Missouri? So, you know, they decided to go to, now, most of them didn't vote for it, but they decided to, you know, let it pass knowing that it was the better option as far as being the most secure with some legislative oversight. And um, and I, th- I think, you know, education, as we spoke earlier in the show, is, is very important. And just seeing more of the trends and learning more on how addiction really takes a hold and how people's DNA is just different. My DNA is just addicting. You know, I've got... I come from a long family of, of people who have, who have been addicted. And so that's just my DNA where someone else can, you know, take a pain medication for three days after surgery and, and, you know, just put it down. I have to wean myself off. You know, that's just how it is. So with neuroscience, I think we've just come a long way. Is there anything else you think that the legislature needs to do to stem the tide of prescription drug abuse? Uh, in the next few years? We need more access to long, um, long-term long outpatient care. And, um, you know, that's that's an area that, that we're lacking. When it came to my daughter, you know, and, and I've talked about this on the floor, and she's totally cool with me talking about this. She's very proud of all that God has done in her life. We're very thankful. And um, But she spent 13 years in deep, dark addiction. And... Um, in and out of many rehabs. And you know, those 30-day programs might get the drug out of your system, but they don't, you, you have to have so much more than that. And so when we finally got her into a program that had the mental health components to it, teaching you how to manage the triggers, helping you to understand the chemistry of what's going on in your body, what's going on in your brain. You know, your 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 brain has, has developed these other pathways. You know, I mean, there's just, there's all of these things that go along with it that if you don't learn that and learn how to manage that, it's hard to have long-term success. And so as a state, we really need to have more access to that. I get calls, my office gets calls from people all over the state saying, you know, this is my situation, my son or my mother or my brother, and I don't know where I can get them in. I don't know how to find help. I'm looking online. You know, I can't find anything that that takes Medicaid or, or how do I know who takes insurance? You know, we need to be better as a state at making that available and then having that information easy access to. I was a, a betting woman. I would say maybe those will come up in some legislation maybe by you in the I'm, near future. I'm hoping so. 
<laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Senator Rader, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. You can follow Jason on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Senator Rader, where can people find you on the Internet where you want to be found? I can be found on Facebook, Holly Rader, and it's R-E-H-D-E-R, or um, Twitter, H Rader. And, um, you know, I'm really trying to do the, um, what's the other one? The Instagram? The Instagram. The Instagram, all right. But I am 52, and so I'm not, you know, real whippy on it just yet, but I'm getting there. Well, I've been asking people <laughs> if you're getting into TikTok, but I think Instagram's the good the good next step. But I I am on TikTok, but oh, you really? I don't do TikTok. <laughs> like, I don't do my own TikToks, but I am having a really great time watching them. <laughs> Oh, hey, (laughs) until next time. So long.